0: Welcome to Asia Rising, the podcast of Latrobe Asia, where we discuss the news, events and general happenings of Asia's states and societies. I'm your host, Nick Bisley, the Executive Director of La Trobe Asia. One of The Economist's regular special reports, which recently focused on India, opens with a ravishing depiction of the high alpine beauty of Kashmir, describing the pilgrimage to the Amanat cave, which contains a phallus-shaped piece of ice, or a lingon. The author contrasts the stunning physical beauty and the commitment of the Yatri with the scant regard they pay to the natural environment. The text he uses is worth quoting at length. The Yatri's devotion is remarkable, but they feel no compunction about leaving some ugly marks on the landscape. The approach to the ice cave crosses a glacier-turned rubbish dump, strewn with plastic, paper, tins, drink cartons and mounds of waste half-buried in the ice. Local men hired to gather litter along the way simply hurl the bags into the glacial stream below. Near the ice cave, the valley is so crowded with shacks, stalls, ponies and yattries that it has the despoiled air of a refugee camp with paths of mud and excrement. The valley is filled with acrid smoke from damp, smouldering piles of part-burnt rubbish. Helicopters buzz above, whisking the wealthy and unfit to the sacred spot. As anyone who has visited India knows, it is a country that can overload the senses. But one of the most striking features that first-time visitors notice is the country's seemingly endemic problem with rubbish and pollution. Whether it's the miasma of Delhi in winter, the endless rubbish strewn on roads across the country, or the estimated 600 million people who defecate in the open, India has a huge challenge in managing the rubbish, waste and pollution caused by a huge and rapidly developing society. Joining me to discuss these issues is Professor Robin Jeffrey, a visiting research professor at the Institute for South Asian Studies at the National University of Singapore. But more than this, Robin is a La Trobe University Emeritus Professor and, most crucially, a member of the La Trobe Asia Advisory Board. Welcome to the program, Robin. Thanks for having me, Nick. Well, let's start with a bit of a scene setter, if you like. So what's, what's the scale of the problem of waste in India?
1: Well, you touched on it uh, when you were referring to the Economist article. India generates somewhere between 55 and 70 million tons of solid waste a year. And probably 60% of Indians, uh, by inclination, defecate randomly in the open, open defecation. So that's a lot of feces, and it's also a, an awful lot of rubbish. And of course, the solid waste is increasing over the last 20 years, noticeably, in the quantity of material that simply won't go away, it won't rot down. It's plastic, it's old sofas, it's rubber mattresses and so on, that probably ends up in landfill or simply uh, littering the sides of roads and empty lots,
0: as tourists in
1: India often see it.
0: The issue in India, I think, is for many people who go there, and if people who've been there many, many times, such as yourself – is the sheer visibility of rubbish and waste and pollution and the like. And if you contrast it with China, a country of a similar scale, a similarly very rapid industrialization, very rapid urbanization, and yet it doesn't have quite the same really visible problem with rubbish, why has India got this issue that other developing countries don't seem to have at quite the same level?
1: Maybe the best way to begin to think about that is to think about liquid waste, that is human waste, urine and feces. In China... In the past, before modern times, human waste was something that merchants in towns bid for the right to collect every morning from homes, would carry it to the countryside and get paid for it by farmers. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that was good for public health and sanitation in modern terms. It still meant there was a lot of fecal matter rolling around in the groundwater system, but it did get it out of the streets. In India, on the other hand, nobody except the lowest status people, Dalits or what used to be called untouchables, still the lowest status people. Only they would go near human feces. So in a village society people went outside as far from their home as possible to defecate and urinate. In cities today where there aren't sufficient sewered toilets for the lower classes, the railway lines are often used and as anyone who travels on Indian railways knows, it's kind of heart-wrenching and gut-wrenching sight in the morning to see uh, scores and scores and scores of people defecating and urinating along the railway lines. It's also a problem for the rails. If they're wooden or iron rails, uh, human waste corrodes them eventually. So caste is the thing that makes India different. The fact that uh, the higher your status, the less you want to be connected to anything that seems to have been disposed of, whether it's your fingernails, your hair, your feces, or or your urine. You want to get it as far away from you. And if you need it moved, you call somebody of lower status to do it. And that's an idea that lurks in many, many millions of minds even today.
0: One journalist put it to me when I was in Delhi a couple of years ago. He made the point that what we've got in India in terms of whether it's public defecation or defecation in the Mm. open or whether it's just rubbish that's just dumped in high volume Mm. is a problem of sort of a lack of a sense of the commons and a sense of what's private is private. Once you enter the public realm, it's no longer your concern. And it's, it's not a tragedy of the commons. It's a kind of absence of the commons. What's your sense of that kind of take?
1: It relates as well to the whole notion of caste because people are conscious even today of their caste, and caste in the past meant that you tended to stay with your own group. You married with your own group. You may have some sort of social uh, exchange with people of relatively similar groups, but otherwise if it wasn't within your household, it really wasn't part of you. And I think that's an attitude that is different from attitudes in other parts of the colonial tropical world, whether you're talking about China, Southeast Asia, or Africa, that Indian sense of, if it doesn't specifically belong to me and people I would marry or smoke a hookah with, then it should be externed as quickly and effectively as possible. And why hasn't
0: state stepped up to the mark as it were because as a country of the scale of India urbanizes and it's been relatively recent it's really only in the past 20 or 30 years mm-hmm. that you've had that rapid urbanization of a very big population but one might have expected that okay we know waste is an issue for the sort of caste reasons you've been talking about part of the reason you have central political authority is to provide these sorts of services and it seems that in many respects whether it's local sort of municipal governments or national governments there's An unwillingness or lack of capacity to, to fill this void, so to speak.
1: Yes, I mean, the rules and the laws are fine. Um, The solid waste management rules of the year 2000, which were mandated by the Supreme Court of India on every local government in India, so that if a local government isn't following these rules, it's in breach of the Supreme Court and its officials can be sued by citizens. Very nice rules, excellent rules. The problem is that nowhere in India is it possible to enforce them. So every local government in India, if one were to pursue this, is in breach. It does mean, though, that where breaches are really bad, citizens in those areas can take their local government to court and Turn up the screws to a certain extent. The state of Karnataka, where I was last week, has rules that allow local authorities to fine people for not segregating their waste into wet waste and recyclables of various categories. But again, it's a, a law that hasn't yet been uh, actioned. The knowledge of what's required is there, and some of the legislation is there. The the difficulty, of course, is dealing with a country that has almost trebled in the time I've been going to India, which is about fifty years now.
0: And there's also, there's enormous variability. You know, you've got very different experiences, particularly, for example, around the use of toilets in some parts of the country. I think it's Kerala where it's something like 90% of the population use loose, whereas you've got in places like Bihar and Uttar Pradesh, very, very low proportion of the population doing that. That's going to add to the challenges.
1: Yes, indeed. And I mean, I think for me, that's one of the uh, ways in which India will begin to address this is to take some of the Kerala examples. I mean, in Kerala, we're now talking about 80 years of very widespread primary education. We're now two generations into total literacy. Now, that means that children in school are learning about germs and bugs and what can happen to bad water. Women have known this in Kerala for three generations. Since the 1950s, women have washed their hands. Poor women, low-caste women, because they've been to a primary school at least up to class six, they can read and write, and they've been reading women's magazines with health hints going back to the 1950s. That makes a huge difference, and it begins to explain the fact that Kerala is so much more heavily toileted, Mm -hmm. and I think probably uses more soap per capita than any other part of India.
0: There's something you said at the outset around open defecation some are forced to and some by inclination do Mm. and you know i think (laughs) that the figures are still every time i look at them i'm still staggered by the sheer numbers of people who defecate Mm. in the open and um, and I think, more than anything, I think that the most confronting aspect of India and its waste issues, why is it that nearly 50% of the population don't use toilets? Is this a supply problem or a demand problem or a combination of the two? It's
1: certainly a combination. Uh, build it and they won't necessarily come. Uh, there has to be a reason for using them. In the North Indian countryside, going outside the village to defecate it can be a social occasion. Even for young women who, part of the argument about toilets is that they're vulnerable when and they go out to urinate or defecate because they then can be prey to men who lie in wait. But even young women, Sometimes it's said, appreciate the opportunity to go out because it's a chance to meet their friends. If they're young daughters-in-law, the husband's family may have them pretty effectively under their thumb. But if they say, oh, um, call of nature, they get to go out and they Mm. might link up and have a bit of a gossip. And for men, it's a big social occasion and thought to be much healthier than sitting in a dirty, smelly little room particularly with a toilet that isn't being properly maintained or hasn't been properly constructed.
0: I was struck when I was last in Delhi and talking to a a local think tank guy who had been taken by the government to a a modelled slum clearing project where they'd Mm. cleared the slum, they'd established land on the outskirts of town and, and divided it up. And if you didn't know quite where you were, you'd almost think you were in sort of suburban United States in terms of nicely ordered blocks and rows, and they're pointing out the mobile phone connections and all these sorts of things. And he said, where's the water and the sewage? Mm. And the guy said, well, they'll have to figure that one out themselves. This is really revealing about the sort of priorities people put around the sort of issues that I think in many other countries would be first and foremost.
1: Yes, water is a huge issue. And the idea that now it's ever going to be possible to adequately sewer Chennai, Mumbai, the big Indian cities, I think is pretty fanciful. We need new and improved toilet technologies which exist, but they need to be popularized and made so simple that they will be acceptable in middle-class Indian homes, and also cheap enough, accessible enough, so that they are useful in the slums as well. Now, such technologies exist, uh, but we're going back in a way to the old conservancy cart days of Australia. In a sense, we have that already in India, and that is manual scavenging, dry latrines, Mm -hmm. which have been part of small-town life for as many hundred years as we can imagine. But that's a filthy, nasty job where people come and clean your latrine every morning and put the excrement in baskets on their head and carry it away for you. That's not what we're talking about. But I think what is going to be necessary is a collection method rather than a sewage method to bring better public sanitation to these growing Indian towns and cities. And the Germans uh, already have, I gather, some quite effective mechanisms of this kind. My friend Asadoron at the ANU has had a a very nice German friend for the last year and a half, who's now back in Germany who has a dry latrine technology where there is a pan underneath a toilet that looks pretty much like an ordinary toilet. A little bit like taking the ashes out from an old-fashioned fireplace. The pan is sealed. Every fortnight before the collection van comes, the sealed pan is removed. A replacement module is inserted. The sealed pan is put out front with the garbage. The van comes, collects the, the pan. It goes away and becomes wonderful fertilizer. Lots of nitrogen, lots of phosphates, uh, you name it, and uh, the new pan has been inserted. Now that's the kind of technology that is probably going to be a lot cheaper and more possible than attempting to sewer these great cities or the growing towns of the rest of India.
0: Which then gets to the question of efforts to combat this and the politics around it in India, and even a practical solution like that that doesn't say, right, we need to put sewers underneath these big old cities. But still the scale in which this is going to have to occur is one where mm. central government, state governments have to really work collaboratively, municipal government uh, and the like. And And of course, we've seen with Prime Minister Modi, he's made various points, questions around rubbish, questions around open defecation, a big political issue. Probably the most public has been that the 2014 Clean India campaign. It itself is kind of deeply political. The imagery around it is an attempt to appropriate the Mahatma, to take him from Congress to say, no, this is BJP can can have him, a piece of him too, and the use of the broom and they're trying to appropriate the broom from Mm -hmm. the Aam Party. So, what's your sense of? that campaign and and its ability to deliver. It's
1: wonderful to have a prime minister saying, we've got to clean the place up. I think that kind of hype is a good thing. And I think people at the grassroots level who have been working on these problems for many of them their whole lifetimes, they kind of welcome the fact that it's been acknowledged at the highest levels. And there's money flowing. But for actual execution, that requires a persistence, a dedication, and a passion The average bureaucrat who's given a target of 200,000 toilets by June the 30th is not going to be able to meet, nor are the people who build those toilets. So the danger is that a lot of action is going to go into meeting targets, building structures, particularly in small towns and villages that don't really work very well, are not going to do the job, which is to provide a desirable place for human beings to uh, excrete. And are going to be left either as kind of smelly monuments or will be turned into useful things like places to store the family grain or prayer rooms, useful things like that.
0: Do you think there's something in this itself which tells us a bit about Modi as a political figure so that he's great on image, he's great on a story, but delivery, execution…
1: I think clean India has a great deal to do with Modi's relishing of the international reputation he has among non-resident Indians. That huge non-resident Indian population, which is, I think, overwhelmingly caste Hindu, higher caste people. They've welcomed Modi and his talk about modernizing India, and it's they who are so... Uh, what should we say, humiliated when they go back to India with their kids and their kids who have grown up in Canada or the States or Australia or Europe say, oh God, this is, look at them, look what mm. they're doing. And it's not them, it's uh, you know, it's us. We are associated with this kind of view from the train early morning that so embarrasses the NRIs when they come home. Now Modi, I think, is keenly aware of that. And some of clean India is driven by his desire to present India in a way that the NRI community will applaud. That's certainly part of the story that's going on here.
0: But do you think there's a a willingness or a capacity to actually clean India up?
1: Uh, Yes, I do. I think um, huge improvements possible. This basic primary education in North India will make a difference. We probably need a lot more harping on the fact that studies are now showing that the stunting of children, both intellectual stunting and physical stunting, is closely related to open defecation. There's a real connection that fecal matter gets into the water, into the ground. Babies put things in their mouths. They end up with parasites that are eating nutrition that should be building their bodies. The important thing there is that it is affecting in it appears, in North India. High status, relatively well-off rural people, as well as the poor. It's a nice kind of binding crisis, if you like. And binding crises are great. The sewers of Europe were built because the middle class wanted to keep the lower classes healthy, because if they were unhealthy, they might infect us as well. So you need these kinds of binding crises, and that may help to produce that sense of crisis across North India that does lead higher status rural people to want to improve sanitation in a scientific way.
0: Because in many respects, it seems, I think, to go back to the point around the sort of embarrassment of the NRI, that questions of waste, rubbish, open defecation are kind of a metaphor for India. Here's this enormous population with this enormous potential, but there are these very visible things that are kind of holding them back.
1: Yeah, and in some ways the tackling of it may be very good for making a better India over the next 20 years because there are some terrific people. As you travel around the country talking to people about liquid waste and solid waste, you get true believers. You know, people who have really drunk the Kool-Aid. I met a guy at one of the uh, seven big solid waste management centers that are being built on the periphery of Bangalore now, which are intended to be proper scientific units. Nine years out of university with a a chemical engineering degree. He's the manager of the plant. He's got 40, 50, 60 people working under him. A grubby t-shirt, picking up handfuls of good new compost, saying beautiful stuff, beautiful <laughs> stuff as it passes through his fingers. Now that's what is necessary. Uh, the other side are the NGOs, some of the top NGOs that are trying to work with waste pickers, people at the lowest end of the chain, to improve their incomes, improve their dignity, give them greater security, and also enable them to do a better job of keeping urban India clean.
0: So you're optimistic about the prospects over the next generation?
1: Yeah, yeah, I think I am. Although it looks daunting now, uh, seeing the sorts of people who have got the message, uh, seeing what has been achieved in Kerala in this basic public sanitation, this can be done. Uh, Just as uh, 10 years ago, I wouldn't have believed that much of India could be non-smoking. But today, uh, much of India is non-smoking. Amazing change.
0: I'm afraid we've come to the end of our time. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the program, Robin.
1: Thank you very much, Nick.
0: You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast of the Trobe Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to Asia Rising on iTunes or SoundCloud. While you're there, leave a rating and a review and do spread the word. Thanks for listening.